Welcome to The Intuitive Customer, where we discuss how you can improve your customer experience and your bottom line. And now, here are your hosts, award-winning influencer and pioneering author of seven books, Colin Shaw and Professor Ryan Hamilton from Emory University. This is one of the reasons why I left the company, because I just felt the company was unethical. I've, I've said before, I think, I would have sold, they, you know, they would have sold their grandmother for 10p, the average salesman there, which was just, you know, just not me, basically. We like to think of ourselves as good. We like to think of ourselves as the heroes of our own stories. We're motivated to not beat ourselves up in many cases. So given the opportunity, we will talk ourselves into it. So that makes it really important to trust those initial intuitive judgments. They found that there was programmatic treat because they found that there was programmatic That's easy for you to say. cheating. <laughs> I'm so ethical, I can't even say the word cheating without stumbling over myself. Yeah. That's how ethical I am. So Colin, as a teacher, I am sometimes called upon to teach new subjects, new topics. Right. And some of them are, are kind of well outside of my my normal domain. So I've I've taught a class on um, knitting. Knitting. I have not taught a class on knitting yet, but because you know that quite well, though, I suppose that wouldn't fit outside your. <laughs> uh, no, but I did, I have taught a class on um, comedy on um, yeah. how to be funnier, which was a, a great one to uh, put together. Um, and I, a couple of years ago, I was asked to put together some training on ethics to give to our students, our incoming MBA students. And the first thing I, I told them is you should never try to learn ethics from a marketing professor. That's like <laughs> good rule of thumb. Don't turn to marketing professor. But I did, I, the, there's good work in psychology on ethics. And so I said, well, I can review that. And luckily at Emory, we have a center for ethics uh, that serves the entire university. And that includes some people who are, are trained in this, professional ethicists. And so as part of this training, we pulled in an actual expert. And I've done this training now three or four years. I've gotten to see some of his presentations. And I feel like I've learned a lot about ethics that I did not know before. Uh, demystified right. a lot of it for me. Good. I've never, ever been on an ethics training course. You there may you turn around and go, well, that's and pretty obvious, And it Charlie. shows. <laughs> um, this is less a podcast episode than it is an intervention. We're all shocked you're not in prison. <laughs> Ethics can seem very scary. It can seem like a, a real abstract, something that we can't learn or discuss. But it's really important. And I think that, you know, I'm going to share, again, I'm not going to claim to be an expert in this. There's some stuff that I understand better than others, but... I found the the trainings to be very helpful for me. And so I wanted to share what little I've learned about the topic and encourage people to do further investigation. We've organized this into a five rules. So here are five rules for being a more ethical person, a more ethical decision maker. So far so good? Yeah, sounds good, mate. Looking forward to this, actually, because I think ethics is a really, it's clearly a very important subject. But I, I think the interesting thing is not many organizations are trained on it. 
I think may- yeah. maybe there is a, there's a, to a certain extent, and maybe I'm old fashioned, I don't know. There's a certain understanding that you would know this as a, it's just an inbuilt thing that you would already automatically understand. Maybe that is an old way of looking at it. I don't know. No, I mean, I don't, I don't think that's an old fashioned way of looking at it. I think that that, that is the assumption that a lot of people have, right? That ethics is something that you're born with, or it's something that you're like your mother taught you as you were being raised or your teachers taught you when you were young. But then as an adult, like, you know, you just, you know, what's right from wrong. And so you just, you have to do it. And I, I think that, that ethics is like anything else. It can be taught, it can be practiced. We can get better at it. The organizations that do train it, it's not clear that it always takes. There was a scandal a couple of years ago when one of the big five accounting firms in the U.S. was penalized pretty substantially from the government because they they found that there was programmatic treat because they found that there was programmatic <laughs> That's easy for you to say. cheating. <laughs> I'm so ethical, I can't even say the word cheating without stumbling over myself. Yeah. That's how ethical I am. They were cheating on a certification exam. So this is a professional exam that everybody had to take and they were there was systematic cheating on it um, yeah. where, where they were sharing notes. And the portion of the exam that they were cheating on was the ethics portion of the exam. <laughs> so uh, they were all they were all giving each other the answers on the ethics portion, which was too ironic to cope with. All right, let's go through our five rules. Um, the first rule and where our, our ethicist starts our students at is to establish a personal code of ethics. So know what you stand for, know where your lines are. He encourages us to think about this before you are placed in an, in a difficult situation where you need to draw on that ethical code. That's an interesting one to start off with, isn't it? Though, because as I've been thinking about this whole area, it's to do with shades of grey. As usual, there's some obvious stuff where you go, "Yeah, well, murdering your boss is unethical." Well, um, <laughs> yeah, let's debate that. <laughs> yeah. Have you got a a big biro that is sitting in your drawer at home that has been taken from work? Right. Okay. You know, and should you treat both of those in the same vein? So both of those are illegal activities. Where does it fit, basically? We'll address kind of the the black and white or shades of gray issue of um, ethics in, in, in another one of the the five rules, because that is a very, very important part about understanding ethics. And it's something that I feel like I understand better now, having heard somebody talk about it. But before you can even get to the shades of gray, you you need to know where the boundaries are. So a lot of difficult ethical decision making happens when you have two moral or ethical principles in conflict with each other, right? So is it wrong to kill your boss? Yes, of course. Is it wrong to kill your boss if he is threatening to harm someone else if you don't do anything, right? And so now we've got two ethical principles which are in conflict with each other, right? Protecting an innocent versus doing mortal harm to another human being. And that's where a lot of these conflicts um, come from. But before we can even get to that point, we have to, to recognize like these are, are the, the principles that might come into conflict. Like you can't even get to a gray area until you know what your principles are. Sure. There are parallels here in stuff that we've talked about before. When we talked about emotional intelligence, one of the 
the key emotional intelligence principles is understanding your own emotions. You know, we like to think of ethics as existing kind of out in the the abstract universe, like there are just there's ethical behavior. And the reality is we we need to determine that for ourselves. We need to figure out what is important to us. Um, sure. Who we want to be. And is there any again, I'm just trying to think of how you would even start to think about that. Yeah. So I mean, do you, you know, do you turn around and go, well, there's clearly stuff that's legal and stuff that's illegal, you know, insider trading. I'm just trying to think of the, you know, rather than murder, which is fairly obvious that it's not ethical, but insider trading, which again clearly is unethical or illegal. But are there any common areas that you would look at? I mean, there are a lot of systems that people can turn to for guidance. The law is one, but I think everybody would acknowledge that the law is an imperfect system of ethics. There are laws that we would consider unethical and ethical actions that are kind of not covered by by laws. But that's one source. You know, a lot of people turn to religious beliefs. Some people turn to uh, philosophy um, as as a source. You can kind of hash this stuff out with friends. There's a psychologist named uh, Jonathan uh, Haidt who who studies uh, moral and ethical decision-making, and he's identified five different dimensions of beliefs that that people of different uh, political orientations tend to differ on. So you could do some reading on that. But a, a lot of it is just kind of introspection. It's trying to decide, like, if I were put in a situation like this, how would I respond? Like, what is most important to me in life, rank ordering those things. So yeah, there's not one path to get there. There are resources. I encourage our, our listeners to look into them if they want more. So that's one. Establish your, your personal code. Know, know who you are, know what you stand for. Number two, uh, recognize the importance of context in ethical decision-making. Um, most people will behave unethically if put into a situation that strongly encourages unethical behavior. So this is the part of the presentation where I came in. I study context effects in a lot of what I do. Certain contexts can nudge you towards buying one option versus another. It turns out certain contexts can nudge you towards more or less ethical behavior. So first establish your core, know who you are. The next thing though is recognize that your ethical behavior is not just a function of your ethical principles. It is your ethical principles plus the context you are in. Right. I show uh, a few scenes from a documentary called The Smartest Guys in the Room, which is about the Enron collapse. Oh, yeah. Great video, great documentary. I think it's on Netflix, at least in some parts of the world, um, but well worth the watch. Uh, it's a fascinating and complicated story, but the scenes that I show, there was a scheme that Enron did because California had partially deregulated energy markets. And I won't go into the details, but essentially Enron was able to come in and create artificial scarcity of energy. So there's plenty of energy to go around, but because Enron controlled several links in the chain, they were able to create spikes in demand because they were they would just cut off energy in certain places and that drove the prices up which is a great way to make money and was, I think, mostly technically legal even because of the the weird regime California was under. People died. Like they they created these artificial shortages and people would get then like trapped in elevators because there were blackouts and medical equipment would shut down and it would, you know, snarl traffic. People couldn't get to hospitals. The clips that I showed 
they had audio recordings of these Enron energy traders who were like laughing about this, you know, like, oh, grandma's going to die because, you know, we shut down the energy, but we made, you know, millions of dollars this day. The reason that I show the clip is, is not to condemn those energy traders as irredeemably evil. I don't think they were. Um, I think that they probably learned a lot of the same ethical guidelines from their mothers that you and I did, but they were put into a situation or they allowed themselves to be put into a situation where everybody around them was encouraging them to act in this way. So is this, so it's making me think here about the Milgram. It very much is. They show video from the Milgram experiment in this section of the documentary. Uh, Go ahead and explain the Milgram experiment for anybody who, who hasn't heard it. Yeah, so this was a famous social experiment in the early 60s, if my memory serves me correctly, where they basically were trying to understand to what degree people would enact what they're what they are told to do. Compliance. Yeah. Compliance, absolutely. Uh, and they famously, I think it was in some of the famous uh, US uh, universities, they had a group of people coming in. One person was the teacher and one person was the, the student or the yeah, learner. patient, whatever it may be. Learner, that's right. Thank you. The learner went into one room that was tied up with a with a um, or a, le- a load of electrical current was applied to them. The teacher basically had to go through and was given instructions to test with the with the person with all the uh, electrics tied up to them, given a test. And if they got something wrong, then they were given a shot of electricity. But every time they got something wrong, then the shot of electricity went up to the point where the person was screaming at the other end. By the way, the, the whole twist here was that actually there was no electricity being uh, delivered. It was all a setup. But they were given a shot that would kill them basically. And it did people carry that out, despite the fact that they were hearing. We'll put a link in the in the show notes, actually. Would they actually take it out? And I think, if my memory serves me correctly, it was something like 60% of people actually went through with it. There were some people that said, well, I'm not sure if I should do this, et cetera, et cetera. But the fact that it was in a university, the fact that somebody was wearing a white coat, the fact that they was they were told of the context of it was in there, that it was being done for research, so there was some good that was meant to be coming out of it, blah, 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 led 60% of them to effectively go off and deliver a, a shot of electricity that would kill people. Yeah, yeah, that was uh, beautifully summarized. It's the same idea, right? So the people who participated in the Milgram experiments were not evil people. They didn't want to hurt anyone, but they were put into a context where that just seemed like the right thing to do. And I think that, you know, these Enron traders, again, I don't think they were fundamentally evil. I don't want to take the the blame off of them entirely. They allowed themselves to be put into a, a situation and they helped contribute to a culture in which unethical, bad decision-making was celebrated. Let me give you an example from my career. This this would be, I'd be interested in your, your thoughts. So back in the day, and I'm talking a long time ago now, right? So, you know, I'm 30 years old ago, uh, maybe 40 years actually. Back in the day, I used to work for a company that sold photocopiers, okay? It was a very sales-orientated business, and when it come to the end of the year, there was used to be this sales competition. And the accepted practice was 
that people would put orders in that were false. Okay. They would then win this competition and then the company would then the company would, you know, reject this photocopier that they thought, which they never did because they'd actually, you know, put the order in themselves. The salespeople would put the order in themselves. At the point I joined, that had been the accepted practice and it was still going on, okay? And this is one of the reasons why I left the company because I just felt the company was unethical. I've said before, I think I would have sold, you know, they would have sold their grandmother for 10p, the average salesman there, which was just, you know, just not me, basically. I mean, everybody knows the going rate for grandmas is like 15p. (laughs) That's right. But I guess the point I'm trying to get to is is your, your point here, which was, it was unethical, but everyone was doing it. So, and if you didn't do it, you were seen to be the strange person rather than the other way around. It is, it is really, that's a great example. It is really hard to stand in your principles when everything around you is pushing you in the other direction. Some people do it and it's, it's a sign of a very strong character, but it is just unnatural for us as humans. We, you know, we're social animals and we, we tend to, to blend in and we want to go with the flow. There's another great example uh, where they, they took these divinity students at, um, I think it was at Princeton, um, but these, these were people who were studying to become pastors, to become uh, clergy people. They gave them a few minutes. They said, hey, we need you to go across campus to give a, a, a speech, a, a talk about the parable of the Good Samaritan. So this is a story in the, the New Testament about somebody who was beaten up and left on the side of the road and, and these righteous men walked past him and didn't help. And then um, an outcast did help him and bind his wounds and all this kind of stuff. It's, it's a story about loving your neighbor. So they said, we need you to, to go across campus and, and give a, a short speech about this. Um, so go ahead and prepare for that. And then they came in a few minutes later and, and got one of three prompts, which was, oh, nobody told you you needed to leave. You're already late. Like everybody's waiting for you. Or, hey, it's about time to go. Like head over to campus or why don't you head over now? You got a lot of time, but they they then uh, all walked across campus to give this this speech, and they had placed an actor in a doorway along the path to the other building who was leaning over and kind of moaning and clearly in distress as these these clergy these pastors in training who were going to give a talk about the the good, Samaritan, good Samaritan walked past somebody in need. Yeah. And they found that the... Did they kick what, them as they walked past? <laughs> um, <laughs> but what determined whether they stopped or not was how much time they had. So if right. they were told, oh, you're already late, you got to go, very few of yeah. those people stopped. Yeah. If they were told, oh, you got lots of time, you know, so lots yeah. of those people stopped. So again, it's not that they were bad people. No, sure. But the context encouraged yes. them to behave in a, yes. a better or worse yes. manner. Yes. All right. So that's, that's two. Recognize the importance of context. Colin and I are always looking for new opportunities for you as the listener to contribute to the show. We love hearing from you and hearing what problems you want solved and what opinions you have. So we've developed a new feature called None of Us Are As Clever As All Of Us. Colin, do you want to explain that briefly to our listeners? Yeah, we're very conscious that Ryan and I do not have the monopoly on good ideas. We sure you have some great ideas, that you've got some great opinions. You may even have a new report that you want to share with us. So all we want you to do is to click on the link below 
and submit your thoughts and then you can appear on the show. So we want to hear from you if you've got something to tell us. We also still have our pickle feature, which is where you can ask us for help. So if you've got a pickle you need solved, you can submit an audio recording of that. You can send us an email and we'll answer your problem. Or if you've got a great idea, you can send us a video for our none of us are as clever as all of us. But Colin, there's a new feature I want to add to this regime, this, this list of ways that people can participate, which is I'm going to encourage our listeners to just show up at your house. If you want to, just knock on Colin's door. He'll give you access to his computer, to his microphones, and you can tell us in that way whatever you want to tell us. I don't know if you know, mate, but I'm actually moving to your house. So it won't be my house that they'll be knocking on. We've got to end this advertisement right now. <laughs> Three, um, which is closely related, regulate your environment, right? So now that we know that context matters, make sure that you are paying attention to that context. So it may be that you control your ethical environment by leaving, right? As you did with that company, you recognized this is not a place that is going to encourage me to make good decisions. Either I will be miserable and punished here, or I will eventually give in and do something that is against my moral code. Um, so you can leave. The other thing you can do though, and, and part of why we give this training to our students during the orientation week is to emphasize to them you are creating the culture of your incoming class. If you collectively decide that cheating is something that will not be tolerated and you will socially exclude those who do or potentially turn them in or you know, if you punish people in some way, you are collectively creating that culture. If you create a culture that's very dismissive of ethics, of cheating, then that's the environment that you'll be in for the next two years. So leave if you have to, but improve the culture if you can, like, and create a personal culture. Like you can create sometimes a bubble. We all know that there's people in, within any organization for whom nobody's going to even approach them and ask them to cheat because they, you know, that person would respond negatively to that. So there, there are also things you can do to kind of insulate yourself from the culture, but, but pay attention to culture and control it when you can. So what's going through my mind as you're saying this is AI in your environment yeah. now, which has got to be testing people in this area. And I was just thinking as you were saying it, having this conversation with them early on about it and confronting the issue, I presume, is one of the ways of dealing with it. I mean, AI in education is so interesting because we're figuring out the ethical boundaries around it like it seems like if you there are clear cases like if you just you turn in an essay that was 100 percent written by an ai chatbot that that's pretty clearly cheating right but then if you use it to improve your writing or to help you brainstorm solutions like that's more of a gray area and we're still trying to figure out what the lines are around that there was some interesting research that a friend of mine is doing that she's still working on where she said that people tend to think that cheating using an AI engine is not cheating. It's not as bad as if it were created by a human. So if you find an essay online that was written by an AI chatbot or find an essay written by a person, you recognize this plagiarism to use the person's essay and not give them credit. But if it was written by a computer, like, man, that doesn't matter. There's no victim there. So, so yeah, we're all figuring this out still. Yeah, because technically it is a, the chat GBT 
not just chat GPT, but any of the AI, is based upon that, isn't it? Which is some of the conversation that, that we've had. I interestingly found once somebody had literally plagiarized some of my blogs and had literally just uplifted a load of them and stuck them on their blogs and put their names names on them. It wasn't until a client of ours told us about it, which I found incredible. But it does have interesting moral dilemmas. So, for instance, if I write something, literally half an hour after it's published, somebody could take that idea, repackage it, and just put it out there. Now, the reality is, is they could have done that anyway and undoubtedly do. But it lowers the work involved. But it lowers the threshold. Yeah, totally. Anyway. It is complicated. I mean, a lot of ethical questions can get complicated. We need to kind of work our way through that. Well, I think it's it's the, for me, it's the interesting bit, mate, is the gray line. Yeah. Because it's just, and it's always, you know, the shades of gray, isn't it? So number four might help with this. So the number four rule is trust your gut on this. So we've talked in in previous episodes about how our intuitions are not necessarily great. Like I know that there are are books out there where people say like, oh, your intuition is your superpower. And it's, it's like this amazing power. That's not true. There are contexts in which our intuitions are very good when they've been trained up well based on experience where we can trust our intuition. But there are a lot of situations where intuitions are terrible because you know, they're not magic. They're just a part of our brain. And if we don't have a lot of experience in, in this domain, there's no reason our intuition should be very good. Ethical decision-making is one area where our intuitions are actually pretty good usually. So if something makes you feel uncomfortable, you should stop, right? You should really pay attention to that. Because if you don't, the rational part of our brain is very good at justifying whatever we're doing. Right? Yeah. So if you ignore those intuitions and say like, ah, let's, it's probably okay, your rational mind will make it okay very, very quickly. Another clip that I show in this ethical training is a clip from Anna Sorokin. She was this uh, scammer who just built rich people out of millions of dollars. And uh, just lied about who she was and where she came from. And uh, Netflix made a TV show about her that was very interesting. This interviewer asked her, like, do you feel guilty about what you did? Like, you took all this money from all these people. You, like, kind of made a lot of people upset. And she was just completely blasé about it. She said, like, no, like, point, tell me who I hurt. Like, where, where's the victim? Like, the, the, you know, if people weren't smart enough to figure out that I wasn't telling the truth, that's really on them. Now, she might be a sociopath. (laughs) That's an extreme example of the general phenomenon I'm talking about. We like to think of ourselves as good. We like to think of ourselves as the heroes of our own stories. We're motivated to not beat ourselves up in many cases. So given the opportunity, we will talk ourselves into it. So that makes it really important to trust those initial intuitive judgments. If something makes you feel uncomfortable, stop. Pay attention to that. Really think about, is this something I want to engage in? Because the further you get into it, the easier it'll be to justify. And then I guess the interesting bit for me, and and, and I do this with emotions and, and during a customer experience, it is, why am I feeling that? Yeah. What is it about this situation that's making me feel that, you know, that this is wrong and try to identify the issue or the, the, the key thing that's wrong with it? That's a great parallel. So yeah, so if something is making you feel uncomfortable, maybe stop and ask yourself, why is this making me feel uncomfortable? Yeah. Is it that it's just new and unusual? 
Okay, well then that's not a problem. Is it because it, it feels like this is violating some of my moral code? Why am I taking this shotgun into my a meeting with my boss? Yeah, exactly. Why, why am I willing to, why am I uncomfortable about delivering this electric shock to a stranger who's failing yeah. a memory test? Yeah, I wish they wouldn't sh- keep shouting all the time. <laughs> So number five, the last one, and this goes back to a point that you raised earlier. Ethical decision-making is not black and white. There are better and worse decisions, and you are allowed to balance those trade-offs to make a plan and to act judiciously. We don't want to use that as an excuse, right? We don't want to fall into like justifying not doing anything because we don't need to do anything, do something immediately. But, you know, you raised this point earlier about like, well, you know, both of these are unethical decisions. So kind of, is there a difference? There is a difference. I think that we can we can rank order kind of these gray areas and say like yeah there's questions about both of these but this is clearly be the better one than the other. Uh, let's go back to your example of you know working for that copy machine yeah retailer you recognized that this was not a good place for you to work that there was this sure. problem you were not ethically bound to then quit on the spot I think that you recognize this is this is not a place that would was good for you that was that this was a problem and it would lead to other behaviors but i would assume you probably lined up another job first and i i don't think that that's ethically wrong and i i think that there's degrees here like if if you knew that they were doing something like massively illegal and really problematic maybe you do quit on the spot and you you, you get away from that immediately yeah no i think as i've thought through all these things when we were um preparing for the show a lot of it does depend upon the degree because I go back to it, murdering somebody or having a, a pen from work in your home drawer, they're, they're very different things. But black and white, is it illegal? Yes, it's illegal. Yeah, But it does go to degrees. And to a certain extent, I think it goes with what you were saying before, is how easy does that sort of sit with you, basically? And, and there's another, another thing I was just thinking about, actually which is if I was to tell my kids that I'd done something, would they be proud of me? Yeah, that's a great one. Because, you know, there are some times where I think to myself, oh, no, that that just, you know, that feels wrong. I'm, I'm running your own company. You know, there are so many things you can do and can't do. Then knowing that you're the leader of the company and other people are looking at what you're doing, is it right or is it wrong, basically? But that does come from, I think, the experiences and the way you brought up and all those. Yeah, I mean, it's it's not going to work all the time. For example, my kids are absolutely ruthless, just like just (laughs) super cutthroat. They would they would want to know why I didn't push harder. Um, Sure. Uh, yeah, like asking, could, would I be able to explain this to my mother, um, you know, or, you know, heaven forbid the police if that ever came about? I think that those are good checks on ourselves. Would I, you know, would my, would my significant other be disappointed if they knew that I was doing this or my kids or, or someone who, whose opinion I value? Like those are good checks to run. Yeah, no, no, it's good. It's interesting, a very interesting topic and one that is clearly top of mind at the moment and i think it's interesting the the organizations that i think tend to have ethical training are the organizations that have had problems with it in the past basically 
Yeah, I mean, that that is interesting, isn't it? Like a lot of the employment that has real strict ethical guidelines, like lawyers, and it becomes a set of rules that people can try to work their way around. And so they get reputations for not being very ethical, but they haven't internalized some of the principles in that in that case, I think. Yeah, no, and it's making me think of a couple of things, actually. One is I know that there are people around who would say that, understanding customer behavior and then designing an experience to maximize the value. I'm trying to be careful with my words here uh, to be accurate, trying to maximize the value out of that customer behavior is unethical. Yeah. And I've had conversations with people. As a form of manipulation. Yes, absolutely. If you took that to its extreme, a salesperson is doing that all the time. So by having even having a salesperson, you are, you know, that salesperson is interpreting what the customer wants and trying to fit their product or service to that customer. Now, I guess to a certain extent, it depends upon the the output because clearly you shouldn't be selling something that is entirely inappropriate to that customer that, you know, you know, they're going to waste their money on it, et cetera. But again, it just shows that bit about degrees and rules, doesn't it? As somebody who studies behavioral science, um, I, I've had these discussions with people who think that that's manipulative and therefore wrong. And I don't try to convince those people that they need to change their view on that. You know, I'm happy to explain where I come from at it. But a lot of this goes back to that first rule. You need to figure out for yourself what you're comfortable with and and where you draw those lines. There's very clearly ways that, you know, salespeople or that behavioral scientists can manipulate other people in unethical ways. So it's not that people who say that are wrong. I think it's a matter of degree and that we need to to decide where we are on these. Sure. But yeah, if you you consider that wrong, I'm I'm not going to tell you that you're wrong in thinking that. It's interesting because as you were saying that, I've been in the UK, they've been having a, the government have been having a COVID inquiry, which I think is a really good idea. So in other words, what what do we learn from COVID? What what went well, et cetera. And in the UK, they've got a thing called, I don't know if you're aware, called the nudge unit. Yep. They involved those people in when they were implementing various different policies. Okay. So you could argue that if you believe it, understanding behavioral science and therefore applying it is wrong. You could argue, you know, that there's a national scandal there. I wouldn't argue that, by the way. And the other thing it was making me then think about is just the, you know, the whole thing about opt-in and opt-out. We know that when there's a big difference between if you're asking someone whether they're going to opt-in to being a donor, organ donor, or opting out of being an organ donor, and the rates for opting in are far lower than the rates for opting out. I think the UK shifted on that some a few years ago. But again, you then go, so is that unethical or, or is that just a choice? Because I would argue, well, you're given a choice both ways. How you decide to act is then down to you. All very interesting conversations and maybe ones that we need to return to at some point. And here's here's an interesting thing. If you've got a view on this, dear listener, we have, as you've probably seen, a new system called None of Us Are As Clever As All Of Us, 
which is all you need to do is to submit an audio, submit a, a video, and we'll play your view. You can come on the show and tell us what your thoughts are. Then we'll further the conversation because we both believe that none of us are as clever as all of us. We don't have all the answers. This would be a really interesting area to get some debate going. These are the principles, and I believe in the principles, but I don't think that they point to direct answers on most things. I think they instead help us develop a framework for understanding them. And the other interesting thing I would say, mate, is if you did give everybody the answers, I lay your money in 100 years, they would change. Yeah. Because people's views on ethics and values and everything else changes over, over a period of time. Absolutely. Good. Great. Thanks very much, mate. Much appreciated. And we look forward to talking to you next week, everybody. Thanks so much for joining us. See ya. Thanks very much for listening to the show today. We really hope you've enjoyed it. And if you have, it would be really great if you could leave us a review. This has been The Intuitive Customer with Colin Shaw and Professor Ryan Hamilton. But it doesn't end here. Just go to beyondphilosophy.com slash podcast to find all of our shows, access free tools and resources, and subscribe, won't you? That way you'll never miss a show. That's beyondphilosophy.com slash podcasts. We look forward to talking with you next time on The Intuitive Customer. Intuitive Customer.